And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on April 15th, 2022. Eliza Greenman is a tree crop specialist, horticultural historian, and agroforestry practitioner living in Northern Virginia. Her passion is in uncovering our nation's horticultural tree crops in order to identify, find, and save a diversity of endangered tree species and cultivars from disappearing. She believes that in giving these trees a human scale purpose, they have a much better chance of being preserved, understood, and further improved for today's changing times. In 2018, Eliza created Hog Tree, a farm business which works to offset livestock feed costs through diversified orchards and tree cropping systems. Today, she raises pigs for charcuterie in a young, diversified orchard containing pears, apples, persimmons, chestnuts, oaks, and mulberries, and her small batch charcuterie ships nationwide from her Hogtree website at hogtree.com. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Eliza. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. You know, I've always admired uh, the people, and it's a small handful of people that are really into fruit and tree fruit, et cetera, people like yourself. And the exploration piece, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but how did you get into horticulture and uh, particularly into, the, into your passion for fruit tree cultivation? Yeah, I was a forester. I have a degree in forestry. And... I traveled around the United States trying to find my niche in forestry. And it, I went from California to Louisiana, where I was working in bottomland hardwoods. And uh, there were so many fruits that were and nuts that were dropping from these really diverse hardwood forests that, you know, I started to think, hey, I, I really enjoy learning more about these fruits than I do thinking about timber or thinking about anything like that. And so um, I, I let make a long story short, I ended up on an island off the coast of Maine to live and work. And somebody asked me, they're like, hey, you're into trees. I had gotten the job because of forestry. And they said, you're into trees. Do you like, um, do you know how to prune apple trees? And I had no idea. And that day, I found a a man named Phil Norris from Maine. He's a piano tuner, apple tree pruner. And I brought him onto the island. And he, uh, that day was, it was an instant passion for fruit trees. It was like my whole life made sense right then and there. And so, yeah, that's how I found fruit. I've always been into trees, but it just hit me. And it turns out that I have a family apple. I learned after that. Oh, wow. And so... 
it runs, it runs in my family. It must have just been some sort of uh, suppressed genetics that finally came up in me. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And man, what a great hybridization, right? Uh, piano tuner and apple tree printer. I mean, I love that. I yeah. love it. <laughs> and Eva and I are always noting with our guests the diverse threads and that uh, rhizomorphic melding. So just a little over a, a year ago, Eliza, you wrote your piece uh, titled In Defense of Bradford Pears. And uh, for arborists and horticulturists, I understand there was a fair amount of, shall we say, feedback. What was the uh, inspiration for the piece? You know, I, I try to remain curious. And I also have... Um, <laughs> Mostly I, I sit with, I like to sit with chaos in the landscape a lot of the time. And there's nothing more chaotic than, than the Bradford pear. And so like the only press it was getting was terrible press. And, and the only emotion towards them is bad and it's emotional and it's never logical. You never hear a logical argument about Bradford pear because nobody's doing any research on the on the sides of it that say, you know, this could be a great thing. I mean, not a great thing, but we could use it rather than kill it, kill it, it's evil, ew, get rid of it. And so this had been a paper and I've been working on for three years of just wanting to explore something that was in this, the Rose family, you know, like it's in my empire of fruit producing trees. And I wanted to explore it to see what its story was, um, because it was here. I knew it was here for a reason. I knew it wasn't brought over for ornamental purposes. And so it was just time to get, be the single solitary voice <laughs> to try and, and uh, say, yeah, so, you know, Bradford Pear is not great just because of all the X, Y, and Z, but, you know, ultimately we can use it. And why don't we think about this practically? which still people don't do. <laughs> I still get more hate than, than anything for that, for that piece, but that's okay. Right. Well, I want to ask you a question, and I probably was taught this way back in horticulture school and have since forgotten, but could we ever back engineer the Bradford pair, in other words, uh, or has that ship sailed? In other words, could we get back to a sterile pair that could be widely distributed? Yeah, more than likely the answer is yes. And there's been some research on this in, out of, uh, I think it's NC State, where they're creating triploid pairs. Hmm. So most pairs are diploids. So that means two pairs of chromosomes. And a lot of times, like in apples, there's tons of triploids that I love. And I actually wrote a piece about it on my blog about why I love triploids. But for apples, a lot of the triploids are fruitful, but they... The seeds, and some of the seeds in them are viable, but not very many. And so in NC State has been trying to make triploid pairs. So basically they'll take a diploid, they'll double it using some sort of chemical like Orslin herbicide will double chromosomes or colchicine. And then they'll breed them back together in order to get a triploid of something that's, I'm, I'm assuming it's for ornamental value. They're trying to aim for heavy lateral bearing. Like Bradford pear, you know, it is loaded with blooms. And in a fruit world, I mean, that's ideal, <laughs> but yeah. also in the ornamental world. So, yeah, I think that once, more than likely, once that's attained, 
and they've got some good ornamental pairs that are triploids, there's very little that'll pollinate them. Or at least if they get pollinated, only a certain fraction of the seeds are viable. And, and there may be fruit, more than likely there'll be fruit, and it might be larger. And so that's, you know, we'll get into that too. But yeah, reverse engineering Bradford pear is, uh, I think, best done through modern day breeding. Well, you know, it's really funny that um, here in Philadelphia years ago, it was not uncommon to find pear trees along the city streets. And I remember one of the historic homes had a pear tree right on the sidewalk. And of course, when the pears drop, you get wasps and yellow jackets and all kinds of other insects that will go after the ripe fruit. And so we started to see a disappearance of those fruit trees on the city streets. But that was actually a good way for people to get food, too. I mean, that was, you're walking down the street, you just pick up a pear and you eat it. It wasn't uncommon. And now we've kind of sterilized everything to the point of people don't know where fruit comes from. They don't know what a pear tree looks like. We do know what a, a calorie pear looks like or or a Bradford mm -hmm. pear. But, you know, we, we've kind of gotten lost in the mix. At least that's the way I feel. Yeah, we definitely have been, you know, it's we're in a weird realm where fruit is now becoming a nuisance in, in, in any sort of urban landscape or suburban, you know, and maybe it's our our legal structures of reliability too, about fruit hitting cars. You know, I'm guessing that there's way more cars lining the streets than there ever was before now. But like, you know, a, a lot of times I, one extreme example on the other end is that I was asked to plant an orchard basically around a trailer park for food foraging. And uh, they, but they were very explicit about you cannot you know, plant them in the trailer park because that's where the, it'll bring raccoons <laughs> and it'll bring all sorts of other animals. And so I think there's a, you know, it's just a nuisance thing to where rather than like waiting for the fruit to ripen, they're just not even thinking about the fruit ripening and just having it and worrying about what's going to eat it other than us, which is so crazy. And in Philadelphia too, like, gosh, what a sad thing because you know, there's such a, I'm, I'm a big buff, a big history buff when it comes to fruits. And, you know, like Bartram's were there and they were whining and dining and collecting all the coolest cultivars from around the United States and the world. And gosh, just think about what could have been lost that was just growing on the streets is really crazy. <laughs> I need to make a quick suggestion if you can see this all right because i'm sure you're rooting around for your next hey article. look at that in defense uh, of our magazine 1993 cool <laughs> From my musty old files so yeah the stinking ash that's interesting i never heard that term before but it is interesting you know you you got some backlash and even i have talked about this how there seems to be the, you know, the tree du jour, like that all of a sudden uh, just becomes an evil presence and let's hurry up and eradicate. But, you know, even just mentioned pears in residential neighborhoods in the city. And 
so our perspective is urban. And when I take the train into town, as I approach Temple University, I'm looking out the window and I see green things and their polonia and their ailanthus and their uh, paper, the true paper mulberry. Those are the green things and the pears. So for me, it's, it's pure practicality that these are the things that want to thrive here. And Evo, you talk about polonia really kind of needing those extreme soil conditions to grow as well as it does, right? That's exactly right. They, they need that extreme. They, they like the alkaline soil too, but they like to grow through cracks. They're what I classify as a deconstructionist and just split open concrete, split open chimneys, houses, basements. So, you know, we do have these different types of trees and their functions are so different. But, you know, the fruit trees themselves are, are such an important component. You know, people, yes, they call them dirty. They call them dirty. But, you know, the humans are the dirtiest animals on the face of the earth with all of our trash and our plastic and our tires and our, well, I mean, we can go on and on. Um, but as, as having you on this show talking about how, and get, getting into the pig end of things, how the, the pigs actually thrive on the fruits that fall. If they're not for human consumption, they're definitely for the pigs. And so I was telling Hal just before the show that, you know, when I lived in England, you, the pigs just ate, they collected garbage and fruits and soft fruits and things and would take them to the pigs in the fields. That's what they fed them. So nothing went to waste. And here we waste so much stuff. It's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, tell us about your pigs. <laughs> oh man. So I guess let me back up just a little bit and say I, I worked as an orchardist under other people for a few years. And, and they're all usually older men <laughs> because of, I work in the realm. I was only interested in the realm of heirlooms um, or like just old genetics. I could care, honestly, to this day, I could care less about anything in the grocery store. So I, but I, under these different growing practices and such with these different people, I really didn't, like I got poisoned, um, I learned, and then like the answer of don't worry, we all get poisoned, you know, <laughs> from, from sprays, um, mm -hmm. that I just decided I got to do something different. And so I went, I actually went to the genetic homeland of most temperate fruit species, which is Central Asia, um, and I went to the Kyrgyzstan portion of the native original apple forest and pear forests. And there I, I was expecting this like thicket of, you know, like I'd need a machete and hack through and, but it's not, that's not the case. Um, it's well manicured. These wild orchards are tended by people with livestock. And I just started to see the real synergy in using livestock as part of your growing practice, but also as a diversification of income for these times where we don't know when, when a late frost is going to do us, is going to do me in. Like that's, a, that's becoming a yearly, a re, I mean, a real scare every year. And so adding a livestock layer was, seemed like the next, the next direction I was going to head. And so for, gosh, years now, um, let's say close to 10 years, I've 
yeah, 10, close to 10 years. I've, I've been researching and practicing and trying to figure out how to um, integrate livestock into my orchards because you're right. I mean, you know, one, they're, they're nutrient producers. And so either I can import some nutrients for them, you know, like grains and things for them to eat and they deposit that into my orchard or they help me clean. I mean, they, they help me clean up the drops that might have disease. They help me turn over the leaves that might have disease through urine and their own nose, you know, <laughs> like they're pretty amazing. And so my, a lot of my um, focus these days has been in collecting or using trees that are pretty bomb-proof, like don't require much sprays in order to feed livestock. And then on the upper tier of that is to sell these fruits for alcohol. So like Perry or cider or brandy, things like that. So it's, it's been a blast. I love it. I'm obsessed. Can you talk about the varieties that you're growing for uh, alcohol? So <laughs> this is going to come back to pear is that a lot of the, a lot of the fruits I'm excited about for alcohol production in the Southeast, you know, the hot and humid. I mean, that's, we're like the final frontier of fruit growing organically because everything, everything stays alive here. <laughs> and so, you know, insects and fungus and all that stuff. Um, and so one of the things I'm really excited about are hybrids, are Bradford pear hybrids or calorie pear hybrids with either Asian or European pears. And my friend, Benford Lepley, who is co-owner of a, of a cider business in Long Island called Floral Terrains, this year, he harvested pears that I had been working on rehabbing that were, they're hybrids. They're, you know, they're like 30-year-old calorie European hybrids. And he took them and made a cider that, or a peri, which is a pear cider. That's probably the best thing I've ever had. It's so good. And so I'm really excited about that, about the idea of, of finally having uh, pear for alcohol in the United States, that's pretty resistant or at least tolerant to fire blight and also all the other fungal diseases. And where, where are these crosses or hybrids getting that from? They're getting it from the calorie side because calories are very insect and disease resistant in our climate and uh, much, you know, yeah, they've just, they're so much older than any of the European pears. So they've had a chance to really They've gone through it all, I feel like, by this point. Um, so that's what I'm really excited about is the future of these calorie pair hybrids for alcohol and also a lot because the sugars are higher, nutritional content's higher, the trees are able to really fish for what they need in the soil. It's great. They don't need much. The, and for the pigs, that it gives them a lot more roughage too, doesn't it? Because of the stone cells in the pears. Uh, exactly. Uh, you know, people don't think about that, but, you know, pears are, pears used to be a lot more popular than they are in the supermarkets today, although we do have a good variety of them. But I, I think that that in itself, when you're talking about taking your pigs and they, they, then they actually go to the charcuterie business, I mean, that that just raises the whole value of, of the whole system. In other words, you're you're talking about system farming, not individual crop farming. You're talking about a whole entire system and a functioning system at a very high level. And I think that that's 
amazing because you don't have to use the sprays and you don't have to use the uh, additives that some places use to uh, keep their trees healthy. You, I notice that you have nut trees as well. So you have a diversity of types of trees that you're, you're growing. So that also yeah. helps with disease and keeping it down. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you make your selections of the other with the pear. So what are you selecting uh, to put with pear? Yeah, so I have apple too in terms of like alcohol. Um, so a lot of heirlooms that I'm growing. I have a whole scheme. And, and I should mention that too. I've been selecting fruits, all sorts of fruits, but let's say namely like apples and pears for their drop time. So I have apples and pears both that will fruit, like drop fruit middle of June. And that's about the earliest I can get. And that's pending no late frosts because those are the ones that get hit the hardest. They have 60 day bloom to drop ratios, which is really about as good as it gets. Um, And then I have apples and pears that cling to the trees into February. And so the idea there is to set up paddocks of trees that will drop fruit all at once, or at least drop fruit in succession. So other things I grow are mulberries. I'm really into mulberries, um, not just for their fruit, which I have some heirloom cultivars that are called everbearings, uh, that like the Hicks everbearing I have, and it's, it's prolific. You know, it's, it's the original hog and chicken tree of the South, and it will produce, in my climate, it produces, it will eventually, two bushels of mulberries a day for 90 straight days. And that's wow. 80 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, that's a happy so chicken. It was thought, <laughs> yeah, totally, or a, or a pig. Thanks. So they said that in the old writings around this tree, they said that four pigs could be under, the, could feed themselves entirely for six weeks in these orchards of just feed. And, and also because mulberry leaves are really high in protein. Um, so it's kind of this perfect, perfect thing. So I'm really into mulberry. <laughs> and I got all sorts of those, things, those going on. So that's mulberry that is dropping on its own. For the pigs? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And then I am into pollarding in different, like, you know, basically extreme pruning measures, learning how to do that in this climate to see how many times I can cut mulberry um, sustainably so that I can feed the leaves to the pigs, you know, because mulberries, they're, they're the oldest agroforestry crop in the world, if you think about it, because They've been cultivated to feed silkworms via cutting and stripping leaves multiple times throughout the season. So silkworms are monogastric, pigs are monogastric. Let's go to town. <laughs> so, Any chance that humans could use mulberry leaves for a protein source? Definitely. There's known, there are some known cultivars of mulberry leaves that, mulberries that you can eat. And I don't know how, I don't have any just yet, but I, I think they're tropical. But, you know, I'm really into learning about leaves to, in order to feed livestock. And, and so I have this book and it's in German and it's out of print. But uh, basically they taught, in this book, it said that they would use Acer, 
Compestra, sorry for my terrible Latin. Yes, Compestra. Um, yeah. Compestra. Yeah, they would use that as a sour, the leaves of that they would make into sauerkraut. Yes. And so like, and that's for human consumption. There's no like animal word for sour, you know, that's silage. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't use that word. That's interesting. Kokunda used the leaf to make like a stuffed cabbage, you know, like, like you would like make a stuffed cabbage. Yeah. Like stuffed absolutely. Kind of thing. Possibilities right. are probably, Earlier leaves would be your best bet. Early, course. yeah, the young ones um, when they're tender. But yeah, I think so. I, I mean, you could, pro- I've never tried it. I'll try it. They're going to leaf out in the next couple of weeks. So um, I'll uh, let you know how it went. That's great. <laughs> There's so much that we've kind of lost over time because we've gotten away from growing these integrated crops and now coming back to it. I'm glad you're doing it because we now are learning, our listeners are learning about it. Maybe there's listeners out there who know it well, just as well as you do. I I don't know, but. I hope so. I'd love to meet them (laughs) and and have some very nerdy conversations. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about your uh, international travels? You said that was your inspiration for the agroforestry that you brought back to the States. Mm -hmm. And what did you see in terms of the culture of the apple trees over there? I'm assuming, did you feel like there was a lot of heavy disease management over there? Are the apples kind of holding their own? The apples are totally holding their own. Yeah. So that's this, and that's part of the symbiosis of, of having animals in that orchard or in this, in these wild forests, because basically I'll just paint a picture of like the overstory of most of the forests are apples and walnuts at a, at about a mile high. Hmm. And on the outsides of these forests are cherry plums and a different kind of black locust that has like red pods and red leaves. And then, and some hawthorns and, and things like that. And so with it, Kyrgyzstan was in the Soviet Union, and so it's everything is gridded out. Like all the, what's crazy is that these wild forests are just on grids, and people lease these grids. And so, what one of the leasees told me is one, everybody's number one crop is walnuts, and walnuts at certain times of the year are basically currency. Um, And so, a lot of their management practices is for the walnuts. So, they'll They'll collect apples, but some of the very, very tall ones they don't bother with. And it's just, they'll move the cattle in in August and, and it's drier. You know, it's definitely an arid climate. So they'll move the cattle in or the sheep in in August. They'll eat the apples and then they'll also eat the grass. And they're also eating any sort of um, walnut leaves that have fallen that still have quite a big deworming property to them. And so they'll move them through and that brings the grass level down for September. September is basically when they start walnut harvests. And so that brings the grass down so they can see it because they shake all the walnuts and pick them up. And having the livestock there helps to feed all the trees. The apples they do harvest, they, they send the livestock through earlier in the year to pick up any of the drops um, that would, you know, cut off insect cycles and all of that, the juglone chemicals that are in the air around the apples, you know, because there's walnuts around. Right. You know, those also help to keep the insects out. So really it was very little, very little problems I saw. You know, there's some insects sometimes, but it was nothing, just nothing. 
compared to what, what we have here. Are the apples used for alcohol over there as well then? Is that the primary? No, it's not. Uh, it's it's primarily a Muslim country. Well, it's a Muslim country. Oh, okay. Um, so they don't, they're not supposed to drink much right. anyway. So on the rooftops, you would see like 10 rooftops or metal rooftops. You'd see just, it would be covered in like halved apples, mm. you know? So they dry all their apples out on rooftops for dried fruit, which then they'll mill. A lot of times they'll mill it and turn that into apple flour, uh, which is sold in the markets and it's really something. Or they'll make, you'll see uh, like clotheslines just pinched with fruit leather that looks just like sheets that they've made. Lots of compotes. I, I talked to a beekeeper there who, who keeps Russian bees. And he's, I was like, how often do you harvest your honey? And he was like, oh, eight times a year. <laughs> you know, wow. just, it's, you know, wow. it's Eden. Like they've got, they've got everything. You go up a thousand feet from, from the apple walnut forest and you hit pure pear forest. You go down from that, you know, several hundred feet and you end up in apricots and then you end up in pistachios and mm. you end up in, you know, it, it's ev like, I've never seen so many apricots on the streets, just seeds <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> like it was, it was awesome. And, and, you know, they have a completely different idea of it than in Philadelphia where, gosh, would it be good to see just nothing but seeds <laughs> on the ground. Yeah. Wow. Even I are just sitting here shaking our heads. This I'm is taking in the apricot part. <laughs> yeah. I love apricots. I love apricots. Yes. So where do you see your business going? In other words, how do you see it expanding? And because I know that just in talking with you for the few minutes, that your mind is always working to, to figure out what's going to be next and who's coming mm -hmm. in, whether it's an animal or whether it's a, a new type of uh, fruit, what do you see for yourself down the line? Yeah, well, I am in the process of buying a 50-acre farm, which will be used to house all my genetics that I've acquired and that I'm in, in the future as well, that I will use, uh, basically, I'll, I'm making schemes, I'm making like how to plant them in the landscape so that they fit in with a whole other group of trees that are dropping at the same time. Or like, I'm also just collecting nutritional values and such and, and slowly working on reports about what things hold or giving talks about it. So it's going to basically become a practical arboretum. And I'm planning on having chickens and pigs in there, hopefully to hire somebody to move them because I'm pretty busy uh, as is. But also I'm really going all in in the Bradford Pear Crosses for alcohol production. And, you know, in terms of what's next, like this is another one that people aren't going to like, but I love paper mulberry <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible. Um, it's to the point where in China, they've, they're using it as a complete feed for chickens. It's got the leaves have a high crude protein or crude fat, and they've got a high protein content. Um, and they cause intermuscular mar marbling. And so I'm moving towards also like figuring out how to use farm, 
farm machinery, like silage cutting machinery, and creating a system that I could cut paper mulberry silage, basically, and then and then uh, use that to feed livestock over the winter time. So are we talking? Uh, are we talking Morris uh, uh, Alba or that no, Bruce Anedia? Bruce Anedia, yeah. Bruce Anedia. That one, I was just going to say, we have a lot of that in in and around the Woodland uh, Cemetery, which used to be William Hamilton's estate. And yep. also, uh, we have it around the University of Pennsylvania. I've seen it. You know, he was said to be the first person to have imported it. But I'm going to challenge that on your podcast, because I found a paper mulberry on the estate of Governor Diggs's estate in Yorktown, that in old, there's paintings that go far back before, <laughs> before uh, William, Hamilton. William, yeah, William Hamilton brought them over. And uh, William, and, and, the, and Diggs was into mulberries and he was into sericulture. He also like was part of, you know, a wealthy uh, tobacco grower that had access to the early enslaved people coming up from the West Indies and paper mulberry was on, had been distributed as far as that too at, by that point in time. So I'm thinking they brought it up because they knew they were like, this looks like mulberry, like let's bring it up. And cause everybody, there's a, a whole craze about it. So I have, I, I, um, I may or may not have cuttings of that because <laughs> it's on national park service land. But um, but I'm excited about it just to to grow it out and actually get to and analyze it and see. I think it's probably the he that would have been 1650 era. So I think it's probably the oldest. We'll have to have you come up to the woodlands and we'll introduce you to the people at the woodlands so you can come and their fruits are so big. I couldn't believe how big they were. Oh, uh, I just, love it because I take give you know take students down there quite a bit and I I could everybody's like what is this what is that it's a paper mulberry paper mulberry <laughs> it's so big yeah and it's a nitrogen fixer yes which is crazy because it's not in you know it's not in the legume family so and I'm sorry say again tell us again how you want to use it on your farm. Uh, ultimately, I want to use it as a silage, so cutting okay. it multiple times a year, right? Um, and and basically fermenting the leaves and being able to store them as fermented to help feed pigs and chickens in the wintertime. Very cool. And it's okay if it runs. I'm going to cut it anyway. You know. Right. Sure. <laughs> so, so yeah. How many people do you have working with you, Eliza? Well, right now I just have myself and it's getting to be too much. <laughs> so uh, in the, once I get everything planted on the new farm, I'm, I'm going to ramp up the nursery business and bring somebody on full time that can be my nur- basically nursery person, but also you're there, you're coming with me on this task, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So that's, sure. that's what's next in, in that regard. But I got to I, I gotta get on this new farm first. Make sure you send us the job posting. We'll post it for you. Oh, sweet. I will, <laughs> will do. <laughs> well, this has been really exciting. Uh, lots of exciting information. And when, when we drive past 
the 495 corridor in Washington, D.C., there is a cloud of uh, calorie pear, Bradford pear in that area. And it is just white. It's just, it's beautiful, but it does have a, a very distinctive odor, not sweet, but has a down note to it and attracts all kinds of pollinators other than bees, which I think is great because they need, they need to pollinate too. So. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one of the big, that's another strength of, of Bradford pear is that, I mean, some people say it smells like semen. Ultimately it's a derivative of ammonia. And so it, semen also contains that as well. So yeah. Um, but that bad, you know, bad smell or whatever is, I think, an evolution, I think it's like an evolved adaption to attract more insects um, than, you know, our sweet smelling, almost non-fragrant, unless your nose is right in them, you know, apples and, and other fruits. I think it's got a lot going on for it. Well, we always ask our favorite question at the end of our interviews, and this is going to be yours. What is your favorite tree? Uh, or group of trees, and just heard about so many. This one I, spiritual. I, I really, love, I really love the mulberry tree. Mulberry. Um, yeah, Morris, and I just, I love that it's so adaptable. I love that it's growing everywhere. I, it's growing on my fence. Like I love that it's a hive of. It's like an ecological hive in a tree when there's ber berries in it. Like the tree is just buzzing with life of, of all sorts of birds and everything. And um, I, I love that. I love the fruit and the, and the possibilities of the fruit. I love that we have in the United States, you know, some mulberry, like the ever-bearing mulberry is a hybrid of Morris rubra and Morris alba. And that sometimes that creates trees that can bear on brand new wood. Yeah. Plus the fact you can cut it and the high protein and the high palatability and digestibility. I think, I think that's my favorite tree. That's, that was, it's got history. That was easy. That was great. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Oh, wow. I think we hit a jackpot here, Hal. I'll say, and I just want to, you know, wish you luck with, all your industriousness and enterprising vision and passion. It's really been uh, an eye opener for me and initiatives like yours are going to save our planet. How do you like that? Uh, I hope I at least make a dent. <laughs> I think so. And to do it all by yourself. That's crazy. <laughs> you never <laughs> sleep. Do you? <laughs> no, I, I try to get a good amount of sleep. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Don't get stressed Sometimes out. Sometimes I don't eat dinner. <laughs> we'll just um, make sure that we follow up with you to find out where you are next. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yeah, thanks for making time for us, Eliza. Good luck with everything. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Take everybody. Care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Thank <laughs> you. 